0: We'll go ahead and get started. Um, good morning, everybody. This must be the crew who went to bed on time and didn't stay out and gamble and drink until the night was over. Um, welcome. Hey, there you go. Just some coffee. There's, a, there's an IV bar downstairs where you can get a B12 shot. Problem solved. Um, welcome to Teamwork Through Common Language, a CPE approach to engaging patients in a mul- or multimodal care plan. Our faculty this morning is Kate Schottmeier. Please help me welcome Kate Schottmeier. Thank you for being here today. And just a show of hands, who knows what CPE means? Good, any other CPEs in the room? Only one. Okay. Well, it stands for Certified Pain Educator. And it is a credential that, unfortunately, is suspended right now. So if you're interested in it, that's awesome. Keep your interest. Just hold tight because there are some things up in the air with um, redoing the credentialing exam. So you're not allowed to get a, uh, apply for a credential just yet, but it should be back in place sometime hopefully soon. So um, this is a talk I designed mostly for people I work with um, because I think it's important we're all on the same page even though we all can't be in the same room. And especially uh, in light of how how pain care is changing, we'll talk about that in a bit. So I just need to say I don't have any financial disclosures but I do need to mention that I work for the federal government. I work at the VA in San Francisco. And things that I say here are in no way the official position of the US Department of Veterans Affairs. We have some learning objectives, and I really hope I can get these across in the time we have. Um, I'd like to explain generally how you can tell patients about your care plan in a way that might entice them more to engage in those aspects and really be consistent with language that we use and coaching them towards the pieces of their care plan that could really benefit them, even if they don't understand what that means at first. And I will briefly touch on the difference between interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary care teams because there is a very big difference and they're often used interchangeably. And I'd like to at least let you walk away having one thing you can say to your patients to help them um, move towards a multimodal care plan and really fully uh, engage with your teammates. So I'm not gonna talk about CDC guidelines. We all know about those. There are plenty of discussions about the implications, but I'm not sure if everybody knows about the Global Disease Burden Report that came out um, last year, and they collected data from 1990 to 2016. And the top two causes of years lost to disability are migraine and low back pain, which is probably why you see a bunch of those migraine talks and low back pain talks here this year. Uh, And so I'm not sure we're doing the best job. And I think partly as we're changing with our systems and policy changes and guidelines being implemented, we need to be aware that our patients are getting lost and we may not be able to fully engage them in a care plan we know is valuable, we know is evidence based, um, because they frankly don't understand a lot of the options out there. If you're not familiar with the Lancet um, back pain series, I'm just gonna give a shout out here. There were three papers published earlier last year and um, uh, at at the end of the year and earlier this year. And I think it's really worth reading all three. They basically make a call for action to change the way we think about back pain and change the way we talk about back pain and change how we treat back pain because there's a big gap in evidence-based care and what we actually do in practice. So, I'm also going to give a nod to a colleague of mine, Jason Silvernail, who's a a very influential PT. He works for the Department of Defense. And he coined this term for me crossing the chasm. We know that healthcare is changing, we're feeling it, we're in the midst of it. If you went to the keynote speaker or keynote talk last night, um, you, you could feel really there was an emotional quality to that for me. Um, we're swirling around in a lot of policy change and a lot of guideline implementation that's hard to understand, hard to keep up with sometimes. So we're definitely in the spotlight in national news a lot more for pain care. But that doesn't mean you have to change everything about what you do. You have a lot of knowledge, you have years of experience, you have you know, great rapport with many of your patients, I'm sure. You don't have to change what you do. It's not like we have to reformat everything we learned or throw out all the stuff we went to school for for many years and paid a lot of dollars for those years. But I would challenge you to change how you conceptualize pain, to change how you talk about it, especially with patients. And I'm giving a talk on Saturday morning about how words matter and how we can actually have a negative impact on our patients' outcomes just by the words we use. And I'll give you a little teaser of that, but I do hope you show up for that as well. Did anyone go see Dr. Mackey on Tuesday? Okay, so a couple years ago, I heard him speak for the first time, and he made this statement, chronic pain care is a team sport, and I couldn't agree more. And that's really the crux of this talk, and you don't have to be in the same room with teammates to treat them as teammates, and I think uh, we could all do a lot better by our colleagues if we talk about them as teammates so that our patients get the sense that we're all working together even if we're very far apart. So the difference, basic difference, this little schematic picture that I came up with here, multidisciplinary teams are fabulous. They're prevalent, growing, I love that, Um, but Basically what this means is I write a document on a patient I saw, write up my evaluation, and I might shoot you an email saying, hey, I saw so-and-so, and and I know that you're seeing so-and-so, and so heads up, here's my report. And by comparison, when you're truly interdisciplinary, your care plan will change based on your colleague's input. And where I work, I have the luxury of working with a very tightly bound interdisciplinary team We are co-located, we have offices right across the hall from each other, we have regular meetings, we have team assessment clinics. I mean, it's fabulous, I'm spoiled, I get it. And I also get that not everybody can do that. But what I can do, and what I also do outside of that team, is I write emails to doctors, I call primary care physicians before I finish writing my assessment or plan, and I have a discussion, and I, we, we can uh, instant message people in my system. I don't know what you have, but if you don't have that communication network established in your community and with the care providers you work with closely or they're in the same region, I would really strongly encourage you to start building those networks and building those lines of communication so you can just call up and they'll take your call, right? You have to work at building relationships no matter where you go. But here, interdisciplinary care really means that you change what you think based on what somebody else thinks after they see the same patient. And in general, there's data to tell us that interdisciplinary team care is better. It outperforms multidisciplinary team care uh, or other types of standard medical approaches for chronic or persisting pain. And I'll give you a a longer list of uh, features here of what, what really comprises the essence of an interdisciplinary care. I'm not going to read all of these aloud. I think you can read them either here or on your app. But Stanos wrote a really nice paper in 2012 with colleagues, and there are plenty of tips and ways that you could think about building some of these key features into the work that you do, even if you don't work in an interdisciplinary rehab program like I do. right? But some highlights frequent, direct, and clear communication that's reciprocal among team members as well as with primary care providers and referral sources. When I worked in the private sector, that's what we did. We set up lunches with each other just to get to know each other, and we would talk about all the patients that we'd have. We would call each other. The doctor's referring to our clinic. We're open to phone calls. Any hour of the day, they'd get back to us, but that took some work, right? And collaborative approach to care, that's pretty basic. Shared philosophy, mission, and objectives, that's my, that might be a little bit harder, take a little bit more effort to really get on the same page with your philosophy in pain care. And again, we're all shifting and changing. I hope that some of your conceptualizations of pain and how it works are challenged at this conference and other conferences you go to, um, because if we don't start shifting our beliefs about pain and why people continue to hurt long after injuries have healed, then we're all gonna be stuck in the same place and not willing to go along with changes that our colleagues are making so here's what i propose if you look at the picture on the right this could be multidisciplinary, where we're all seeing the same person but the person feels on the outs doesn't feel cared for because everybody's talking a different talk and this is what we'd like you know we're all connected maybe not in the same office space but we're all faced towards the patient's goals and we're all on the same page on what those goals are. And we've had a discussion with the patient about what he or she is actually interested in doing and trying to change for themselves. So do you need regular meetings? I would argue yes, but do they have to be actual set, preset times and protected times in your schedule? Maybe not. That's what we do where I work uh, and that works for us. It may not work for you, but maybe you want to consider that Definitely virtual open door policy and tell your colleagues in the region where you work that you can be reached and if I'm not at my desk or I can't get back to you, then I'll get to you when I can but I'm not just gonna ignore you. But you have to be willing to put in that time which I realize is squeezed tighter and tighter and, and I get that too. It's not that uh, I have the luxury of time and I never have anything to do but talk to my colleagues. Um, understanding your roles and strengths. Now I'm gonna talk most heavily about this today That's really the crux of a CPE. That certification means that you have a a good knowledge base on what everybody else in the multidisciplinary pain team would do and have a good sense of policies and and legal implications and also then can have a conversation with a patient who may not understand why they got referred to a psychologist. Okay? And you as the physician who refers, or you as the nurse practitioner or or otherwise primary care provider, you might refer to a psychologist and think you had a great conversation about it, and the person says, sure, I'll try that. And then they come and see me, and that's a totally different story by the time I hear about it. Okay, So you don't always get to see those things, and I don't always get to hear what patients say after my interaction with them. But if we all start to get a better understanding of what each person does, I think we can do better by our patients. And again, common language is really important, and we're going to talk today about how you can start to shift the way you talk about pain, as I said in the beginning. Not change how you approach it, but change how you think about it and why your interventions might be helping. And from a nervous system perspective, I think a lot of things that might not have made sense before can can make more sense when we frame it that way. So common language, whether you see the patient um, the same day as your colleague or if it's two months apart, using similar phrases, using some uh, catch terms, and making sure the colleagues that you see most often or interact with most often, whether it's virtually um, or they're, they're across town and you never talk, Making a point to establish some phrases and some messages could be really useful so that you repeat and echo what your colleagues have said and the person you're caring for can feel a wraparound effect. And really that can increase the confidence in a treatment plan. So imagine if you're someone with persisting back pain and you've gotten three different answers to your same question with three different providers. It's very confusing, and it can mean that someone doesn't feel like anybody knows what they're talking about, and therefore, why bother? Why am I going to go through this thing? Right? Nobody knows. So these are some team members. These are the the types of team members I work with. Very extensive list. It's fabulous. And, of course, the patient, when we have our team assessments together, uh, we sit down and say you're the most important part of this team, so your input matters more than ours does. We're going to give you our ideas, but you help us decide what to do. You may only have two people on this team. Great. Start with that. Build from there. So basic overview. I'll let you read these. If you see your name on that list or your discipline on that list, you know what you do, but you may not know exactly what others do. This is a very brief description of each of these. And when I redo this slide deck, I'm going to add education to every one of these because I think education matters most, and how we educate patients can make or break their decision to pursue a care plan and to actually uh, think differently about their pain condition and feel more hopeful about the future. So here's a little teaser for the 940 talk on Saturday. (laughs) I am on a personal mission this year to eradicate the word chronic from my vocabulary with patients and chronic pain. Try not to say it. It's really hard. But this group published a great quantitative, uh, qualitative study in 2009, and things that you say that you might not think twice about can actually do harm in terms of patients' beliefs about their bodies. Instability, there's a fabulous talk. Stay all through Saturday because... Uh, Jared Hall is gonna speak about core stabilization, and Dr. Hall actually has a lot of very good things to present, and I encourage you to go. Because that word by itself can be really harmful to people, especially with back pain, who are worried about moving around. Chronic, a couple steps from a wheelchair. And I would, I would challenge you all to just test this out with your next patients, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, all through the day. Ask them, what do you, when I say chronic pain, what does that mean to you? What is the word, do you know what chronic means? I ask that question to my patients all the time, and it's really interesting what they tell me. It's not what I think, but more often than not, people are associating that word chronic with it's never gonna get better, it's only gonna get worse, and this is, it's hopeless, right? And it may not be to the level of suicidal thoughts, but hopelessness can keep us stuck in these patterns of avoidant behavior and disengagement. And we have a problem as healthcare providers. Our conceptualization of back pain um, is still often way too biomechanistic. There is a great talk I saw scheduled, I think, Friday on back pain and the myths, and the Lancet paper series is really gonna delve into this, so I encourage you to read it. But Ben Darlow and his group have published a number of excellent papers on back pain and clinician beliefs and provider-clinician interactions. And in general, these are the things we still think and think about when we're thinking back pain, and maybe not you in this room, but collectively, uh, you know, the healthcare system globally, not just in the US, still has an issue with considering backs vulnerable. And I had to flip that view. I I was one of those providers that taught the very precise, uh, small movements to get your course specifically engaged in just the right way, and then you have to stabilize those little spine segments or else. And I know better now, and, and I try to talk differently now. So there is a mismatch. So even when you are really up to speed on biopsychosocial frameworks and you understand that it's not just in you feel worse emotionally when you have more pain you understand there is a physiological interplay among all those domains even when you get that we've got a lot of work to do we got a lot of work to do you're going to work with patients who still tell you but did you see my mri but didn't you know that i have it's an uphill battle And when you hear patients describe their condition in terms of degeneration, wear and tear, I ask my patients every single time for a new evaluation, why do you think you still hurt? Every single time I ask that, and the majority of the time they say, well, I must have worn myself out. And I work with veterans, so they always associate these 20 years ago things they did to the pain that started five years ago. Oh, I wore out, finally just broke inside. And that's really tragic because we are wonderfully adaptable creatures and all of our cells are adapting and changing and they need that kind of challenge, physical, mechanical, load challenge in order to continue regenerating and, re- and rejuvenating themselves. And if we don't enthusiastically say things like that as healthcare providers, we are the people they look to. And if you think that um, as a provider or as a person that we need to be careful with painful body parts, that translates into beliefs that your patients take on. And, and, and I would say, challenge your beliefs. I had to do it. It's not fun. It's not fun. I was very, uh, I'm a physical therapist. We get trained in biomechanics. <laughs> you know. But, and it's kind of disheartening to know that biomechanics don't matter as much as we think <laughs> in terms of pain, that's true. Um, but some of the words that we use here, I'm not going to spend too much more time on this, but look at that list and see and think about how many you use on a day-to-day basis. And here is a, just a brief alternative list, and today is not the day, but arthritis is something I'd say, maybe try to eliminate that too. It's really hard, really hard to have a conversation about pain without using that word. So common language, how do you support your teammates? First of all, make sure you are consistent with the most current science that we have about pain. Is your narrative plausible? Is your care plan actually plausible, given the science that we have and the kinds of things you're recommending, whether it be medication, procedural interventions, uh, or movement therapies? And promote your colleagues. So as I said before, I sit in an office um, that's across the hall from my colleagues, a psychologist, but my patients might not ever want to walk into that office, and they tell me so. And so it's my job to coax them towards those kinds of interventions that can be very helpful. And even if they're not into it at first, it's usually because they don't understand it. And I have a conversation with them about it. And by the end, half the time at least, it's anecdotal, uh, they're willing to do it and try it, right? So really talk them up, have your colleagues back. And refer to your colleagues as team members. We're all on the same team. Whether or not I ever physically meet a primary care physician, that person's on my team. And we gotta make sure that we're saying those kinds of things to patients that we treat. We're all on the same team. So anyone know the term splitting? Raise your hand, heard it before. So several people don't know that term and I'm no psychologist, but I work with them closely and I had to learn exactly what that means. It really is um, a way that people interact differently with you and with your colleagues. You're the best person on the planet when you're in, your, in the office with that patient, but they leave your office and they go over here and you're the best person on the planet and that person terrible, oh, terrible over there. And it may not be volitional, but there is some manipulative quality to that strategy. Um, and, and that when we all refer to each other as being on the same team, splitting can be reduced. And that's really much more effective for, for engagement in healthcare. So persistent pain is driven by the nervous system. All pain, I would argue, is a nervous system thing. It's a protective response, okay? But specifically in persisting pain conditions, notice I didn't say chronic, right? I'm working on it. Persistent pain or persistent persisting pain, whatever you like, persistent pain conditions. And I'll, and I'll give a little nod to my colleague in the back of the room. I saw her there, a psychologist. She's been really slowly integrating the term pain condition, and I didn't. we didn't even have a formal conversation about it, but that's how these things get in, the little osmotic effect, right? She uses pain condition when talking to patients. She doesn't talk about your pain, necessarily. She says, your pain condition, and it's not your chronic pain, right? And there's a difference in how that feels and how that's... Um, thought about in patients. So, thought viruses is a term that came from Laura Mamosi and David Butler in their Explain Pain series, another very good resource if you don't know it, any of them. Fear avoidance cycles, pretty straightforward. We know what that means by now, I hope. Um, But it's nervous system fear response that drives a lot of this, right? And there's no medication for fear. Someone said that in a talk yesterday. Uh, Neurocortical changes, there are a lot of things that change on the brain level when pain persists in response to pain that keep these loops going. And I teach patients about this in my work. Consequences of stress and the persisting um, activation of the HPA axis we know has some physiological impact and definitely can keep all of these things upregulated, lead to sensitization states. And we know the immune system adapts in persistent pain states, and that's a really important thing to understand when you're thinking about medications or lifestyle coaching that you're doing because all of this matters for improving uh, the way somebody feels. And even though genetics and epigenetics are pretty predetermined, our lifestyle choices and our circumstances can change gene expression. So having conversations about this as it relates to pain is very important, and we can all do this no matter what discipline we're from. So how do I do it? I'll give you some very clear examples on how I do this. And again, I I have the luxury um, to witness when someone goes from one office to the next office. We have these team assessment clinics. And in the same afternoon, four of us will see the same two patients, and they'll go one by one, and then we'll all get together and talk about what we thought. And it's fantastic. And even in that really close-knit setting, from one hour to the next things completely change in a patient's interaction with that provider. We had a patient once, and I I only know this because we have students in our clinic all the time. Um, This DPT student went through a tracer, so she followed the same patient as that patient was evaluated by the physician, evaluated by by the psychologist, and then came to my office, and that student followed around, right? So she witnessed the interactions between provider and patient in each of those settings, and by the time she got to me, My student said, i got to talk to you. Something really weird happened. And what happened was the physician who I know and work with closely and I know this woman is mindful of her words and I know she's very caring and I know she has straight talk with her patients. So I trust her implicitly. And in that conversation, this physician was talking to a 32-year-old woman who had widespread pain, had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, but also had increased back pain in recent past. And so she asked the doctor about her back pain and the doctor said something that she felt was benign. Oh, well, you have a little bit of arthritis, but it's normal for your age. Don't worry about it. And the, the session went on, patient seemed fine, goes into the psychologist's office, falls apart crying. I just learned that I have really bad arthritis. What am I gonna do? She didn't say that to the doctor, but she's in tears the ne- next time she talks about it 10 minutes later. It's wild, and this goes on all the time, so we really need to be aware that it's happening and that what we say matters, and that if this happens and someone cries in your office, you can explore those beliefs and what's going on in, in, for them and the emotional factors, right? So my doctor says, here's my problem, right, w- with arthritis. Arthritis is a condition, sure, but it's not always painful, and usually it's not painful, but it can set the stage. It can be, uh, I'm gonna use something that I've heard Jared Hall say, It can be putting fuel or fire accelerant on a campfire, so now it's a bonfire, right? So you have some condition in your bones and you're mostly fine until things change in your immune system or your stress response system. And now suddenly it's a problem, but it's not because those bones need to be all cleaned up, right? Not necessarily. Pain psychology, what the heck do I need to see a psychologist for? I have real pain. It's not emotional. Well, and interesting, emotional pain is something that recently patients I work with have argued they say I have emotional pain. Why don't you ever talk about that? And here I thought I was trying to not stigmatize things, you know. <laughs> um pain pharmacy. I'm not a prescriber. And time and time again, people in my office will talk about their medications and express their frustrations with their medication regimen. So I need to understand what those medications do and coach the patient towards better engagement with their providers who do prescribe because they're not going to stay on the med regimens if they're frustrated by them. And they may not ever tell you. They just don't fill that medication, right? And this is my favorite. I'm not on any pain medications. All I get is ibuprofen. Did you know that that is a specific medication that has a mechanistic action on, anti, on inflammatory pathways and that's actually a pain medication, probably the most appropriate one for you, you know, given your pain condition that we assessed? People don't know that. I don't get any pain management means I don't get opiates. And that's still the language that I hear. So we need to correct that belief and, and change the misconceptions. So here's something I use to help people understand why an interventional medicine procedure might be recommended and how it could help and why it's only transient, all right? So imagine, see my tiny house? I chose this cute little tiny house picture. And by the way, all the pictures that I use in this presentation and others, um, I've carefully gotten from sources that are not copyright protected, so uh, I didn't have much of a choice with my tiny house picture. (laughs) but imagine that you or your family and you make a life choice to just downsize your home because of financial interests or because you want to try the economical living or because you just don't want to be materialistic. Whatever it is, you make this choice because it's the right one for you, not because you're forced to do it, right? But if you were to go from a four-bedroom house to a tiny house like this from one weekend to the next, it would be a really rough adjustment. I'd be crabby. That's hard. I mean, I just have two cats and a husband in a two-bedroom apartment, and sometimes that's really hard, right? But if you choose to do it, it's fine. And uh, if you do it slowly, if you downsize bit by bit, because you haven't found the right tiny house, but you want to get rid of your stuff, you know, go from four bedrooms to two bedrooms to one to a tiny. Great, easy, we're all fine. Now we're getting excited for the next and final stage. Well, nerves, and, uh, <laughs> nerves houses do this, too. Nerves can get used to very small spaces, They can be fine in there, really happy, right? Just like humans can. And usually those changes happen slowly enough for those nerves to get comfortable and continue to be happy. This is exactly why many people can have lots of changes on X-ray or MRI and no pain. And we know these are robust studies from around the globe. We know this data, right? But why is it? Because it's slow to adapt and the system adjusts and it's no big deal. But... Say you made your happy home in your tiny little new house. Other things can make nerves crabby in there. What if your in-laws come to visit unannounced, and they bring their dog that's yappy? in your tiny house? Ooh, that would make me crabby. I'm happy in my little space, but you come visit, and I just want to get away, and I'm going to complain about it, right? So do we actually need to make a bigger house, like get a surgery to help these nerves that might be a little crowded? We know that people with back pain and even radicular symptoms can resolve. We know that cervical radiculopathies resolve and they're self-limiting within a year because it's not about the tiny house. It's about the chemical consequences in your body and the stress response and the muscle tension that goes along with that, right? Makes it crowded in there, right? Steroids also can get rid of those in-laws, right? Powerful anti-inflammatories, or uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can help too. This is why ibuprofen is a pain medication, right? So explain that. Healthy diet, we can have inflammatory foods perpetuating this. Alcohol perpetuates this. Uh, Smoking, tobacco products make nerves crabby, right? Decreases blood flow. Good sleep, we know there was a great talk on sleep earlier in the week. If you missed it, I'm sorry. And stress management is important. So if you're recommending stress management when a person is in distress about pain, they might say, but my back hurts. I have to deal with that before my stress can get lower. Right? And so it won't make sense. Your care plan won't make sense if you don't explain this stuff in ways that patients can understand. So what does psychology have to do with my pain? Now, I've heard a number of people say psychologists are, are my best teammates. I love them. They're great. And... How do you describe a psychological component to your multimodal care plan to your patients? Think about that. Because if you're waiting until you've tried this and tried that and tried that, and then say, well, we've tried all this, let's try to see a psychologist. It doesn't work, right? People will immediately feel stigmatized. And in general, if you don't understand what a pain psychologist can do for pain, get educated because you'll pitch it better. You can't sell something you don't believe in. Cognitive behavioral therapy. And acceptance and commitment therapy. I'm going to give you my really brief physical therapy version of this, okay, very, very soon. But patients still feel invalidated, and uh, they're not going to engage in this kind of intervention if they don't think that it actually matters for their whole health picture. And using a nervous system framework can help support approaches. So uh, the psychologist I work with has said to me, you know, using nervous system language actually makes it easier for me to pitch my own stuff. I couldn't get buy in before, like I can get now, because people didn't understand what that means. It's sort of vague. And when you say CBT, what does that mean? What is acceptance? And I work with veterans. I'm not accepting nothing. I'm not submitting to that pain. That's what they say. It's not about that. That's, that's not what acceptance and commitment therapy is. But if you don't know how to explain it, they'll be left with their own ideas. So CBT is really just a process of recognizing that there's a tight interplay between what we do, how we think, and how we feel. And usually all we notice is what we do. We notice the actions that we take or don't take, the persistence coping or the avoidance coping or the limping or the other pain behaviors. Um, and we, don't, we can maybe notice the emotions. The work we do, you know, emotional identification is really difficult for some people. They can't, they can't connect a certain feeling or mood to how their body is reacting. And so that takes some specialized training. And really the crux of CBT is recognizing that there's a thought behind everything. Remember the thought viruses? Explain pain series? Thought viruses, thoughts and emotions, are nerve impulses too. That's not my phrase, Laura Mosey said that. But CBT is learning how to catch and check and change those thoughts. And so as a PT in the work I do, I use this language. I talk about people's thoughts, and I catch them, and I do that. I catch it in the air. (laughs) I gesture. Wait, wait, wait. You just said something really important. Let's stop and catch that and check it for a second. ACT, by contrast, is recognizing that when you're in a struggle... Say, pain is over here, or if you can't read this, what's written on this ugly monster is fear. There's a fear tattoo, an unworthiness tattoo, a self-doubt tattoo, anxiety, sadness. All of those things that people struggle with, and pain is probably in all of them. And we're in this battle, a tug of war, right? And very often, it seems logical to just keep pulling against and fighting and fighting, when really, in order to avoid falling in the hole, you just let go of the rope. So I have not done any ACT training, but I think everything I hear about what our psychologist who does provide this type of treatment intervention, everything I hear about what she does is so cool. I tell the patients, it's so fun. I mean, it's hard, it's hard work. Don't get me wrong, ACT is hard. Um, okay, so CBT, how do you explain this in nervous system friendly language? Here's how you might do it before. CBT works with thoughts and behaviors to help you better manage your pain. Okay, great, patient thinks, that's dumb. Well, with nervous system language, how about this? When a person has pain for a long time, it can change the nervous system and make it extra sensitive. And did you know CBT is a well-established and effective treatment that works with thoughts and behaviors to help calm down the nervous system and make it less sensitive so you experience less pain? That sounds more enticing to me, right? Nervous system matters. Acceptance and commitment therapy, these are the tenants. Be present, open up, do what matters. And the way this is delivered is often in these experiential sort of experiments. And, and I'm no expert at all. I'm just like a very baby novice at this. And I don't deliver this treatment at all. But I need to understand what it's about and how the changes come about. So what I can do as a clinician is embody and embrace these principles in my office. So think about how you interact with patients Think about how you feel when you're with those patients, those patients you don't want to see. You read a chart and you go, oh, all right. (laughs) It's hard work to be aware of your own feelings and interactions and actually catch those and check them. Are we judging people all the time? Do we have biases? Absolutely. Do we have to show them? No. Can we care about people genuinely and be empathetic despite our bias? Yes, and that's what healthcare providers do all the time. But what I would argue is we don't always do a good job of these middle things. So in my clinic, when I train uh, doctorate students who come through for internships in physical therapy, every PT student who's going to get a doctorate degree gets graded on all these different domains so they pass their internships. Okay, and a big part is communication, and I judge my students on their nonverbal communications. I had one student last year who, she makes big faces and big eyes. She's just, she lights up the room. Big eyes and huge smile, and I say, we gotta work on that, honey, because you might inadvertently reinforce someone's belief about their body when they slam an MRI finding down on your desk. Has this happened to you? They take, they take a, big, a big MRI report and they say, have you seen this? This happens to me all the time. And so-and-so said this about my back, and so-and-so said that about my neck, and this you know, this is what they're living with. And if I were to say, ah, oh, that sounds terrible, what do I do? That just reinforced somebody's idea that this is really bad going on inside me. That patient might think, you just validated what I was already thinking. Because human brains are always looking out for confirmation of what they already think. That's the essence of placebo and nocebo effects, too. We skip ahead. We think we already know, predictive evaluations. We think we already know what's going to be said, so we might hear something or see something that has nothing to do with what actually happened in the room. And I'm going to share a quick quick story that I just heard last February. I joined, uh, if you ever get the chance to see or hear a man named Mike Stewart, He's referenced a couple times um, on my Saturday talk. Mike Stewart is a physical therapist in the UK, and he travels the world talking about how to help your patients express pain differently, using metaphors, the importance of language, all of that. He's tremendous. Mike Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. S-T-E-W-A-R-T. So he had a patient. Um, he was teaching a class, and he had been carrying like a, like a reflex hammer uh, in his pocket for some reason and he used it to make some demonstration gesture, whatever, and he had a reflex hammer out, and one of the patients in the room said, whoa, why do, you have, why do you have that? And this guy thought that the reflex hammer, he had an association with the reflex hammer and pancreatic cancer, right? Why, why? <laughs> exactly, very strange, because that man who's suffering with pain that's mysterious to him didn't understand why he hurt, had an uncle who died of pancreatic cancer, and when he was in the hospital with that uncle, the doctor kept using a reflex hammer. So now the two are married in that man's brain. And that's just how our our adult human brains work. So things that you say you don't even know you're saying will be caught and trapped in that brain thinking, oh, yeah, my back is really damaged, right? So careful. Encourage your patient to sit and breathe with you. I have done this a number of times, and sometimes it feels really uncomfortable for me. And it's not always what patients want, so I would also suggest you ask what they think they need right then. Uh, but don't promote that frantic distraction. You know, we on our team work very hard to not reinforce pain behaviors And it happens all the time. And we don't try to fuss and make comfortable and get you a chair and have you a cushion over here. And I've I've had patients ask if they can lay down on the plinth while I'm talking to them. And I say, if that's the only way you think you can get through today, it's all right for today, but we'll keep working on that. But most of the time, I don't respond. Or I'll say, I notice that you seem really uncomfortable. Is there anything else that I could do to help you be more comfortable? So be present and resist that temptation to back away or make the appointment end sooner than it has to or swoop in with a quick fix. Okay, 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 well, we'll try this new medication or uh, you want to get massage? Okay, fine, that should help, right? Instead of having a conversation about what would work for that patient given the whole picture pain pharmacy, so I'm not a prescriber, as I said, but patients always talk about medications with me. They're frustrated, they're annoyed, they don't feel justified, uh, they feel like medications are thrown at them, and they're tired of it, or they give up on a medication before they've truly gone through the process of knowing whether the, the um, benefits will outweigh the cost, because some, like gabapentin, have a ramp-up period that's pretty uncomfortable, and a lot of people just stop after a week because they don't like the side effects. And sure, that's fair, but... If I could say, well, did you know it's kind of normal for that to have a slow ramp-up period and it gets better if you want to keep trying it? You know, I mean, if it was prescribed and your doctor thought there was a good reason, you haven't quite given it the full chance it's only been two weeks. I can say that, right? What I also make sure to say is, you know, your nervous system gets riled up. And as we said, persistent pain has a lot to do with the nervous system. So anything we can do to calm down the nervous system will be good for your pain. So think about coaching them in your health system towards you know better timely refills if they're if they're really tied to a medication and they haven't learned other coping strategies yet, that can be really anxiety provoking, and they might be in these constant cycles of chasing meds right because they're not getting them in the mail and there are you know systemic reasons for that I'm sure, but educating them about two things promoting uh, function uh, there's a physical therapist I know in Canada who says. I don't ever say pain pill. I say, this is your movement pill. How's your movement pill doing for you? (laughs) Because if it's not helping you move, what's it really doing? You might placate your symptoms a bit, but your quality of life is in the toilet, right? And educate about basic expectations, like I said with gabapentin. They might have different mechanisms of action. People don't know this. They think they just go to the doctor and, well, you tried this one already? Well then, try that one. But they don't understand the pharmacokinetics or why. What's the rationale? And if you explain an inflammatory process and you explain your exam findings and you say this is the best type of medication for your type of pain, the buy-in's a little different. And I can say that as a physical therapist without treading in someone else's scope of practice. Okay, I can't give specific medication advice to that individual about dosing, but I can say, generally, this is how this medication works, how that medication works, did you know? And there's probably a good reason why that prescriber wrote that prescription for you, but you may not have had the chance to talk about it, or during that interaction, you were focused on something else and didn't hear a thing that was said. That happens too, because I know lots of people do, very responsible prescribing and have conversations. So how else can I help? People finally make it to my office, that's fantastic. I cheer that on. By the way, when when someone comes into my office and they say, this went terribly and that went bad and nobody understands me and I'm not seeing that person again, I say, hey, thanks for coming today. You didn't have to. Thank you for being here. I can tell this has been really rough for you. And uh, then we talk about my care plan, and I say I hear that medications are something that helps, helps you, because I always ask what helps, what doesn't help. Uh, but that can't be the only thing. You know, pain is complex, and it has a lot to do with the nervous system. So medications can be part of it, but you can't drive a car with four flat tires, and medications only fill up one of those tires. So what are we going to do with the other three? So the American... Um, Chronic Pain Association has a great little video on the car with four flat tires, gives you the script. And Mike Stewart, nopain.co.uk, he has lots of resources on his website, and another metaphor you could use for a multimodal care plan, you can't bake a cake with only flour. So having a pain care plan with only medications is not gonna cut it, you know? You're just not gonna get a very good cake. So how can you support people like me? Physical therapists or movement specialists? engaging patients in a movement regimen when they're scared to move or it hurts too much to move so they don't do it use some language to encourage movement to support resilience to change their thinking about their body Um, talk about movement as medicine so medications I talk about movement as medicine all the time and I even use the language well if it didn't go well the first time maybe we didn't find the right dose Let's try a different dose of movement, okay? Sometimes we have to use imagine movements because the system is so riled up that even thinking about movements causes pain, so we might need to start there. Uh, so you can be sore but safe, the hurt versus harm conversation. If you don't have that conversation in your office, I highly suggest you start inserting that into your language wherever you can because hurt doesn't equal harm. Nociception does not equal pain, but that can feel really confusing. And start low, go slow. Most people do well with a graded progression And they need some lingo to go along with it, something to think about, tagline, right? That's why marketing works, because we have these catchphrases that stick in our brains. So get some of your own. Start low, go slow, pace it, don't race it. If you have a flare-up, use your flare plan. I was uh, listening to a fabulous talk about emergency medicine and acute medicine with Dr. LaPietre yesterday. And I talked to her afterwards. I said, do you ever coach people who have learned some coping strategies to use their flare plan when they show up in the ER? Instead of just saying, I'm in crisis, help me, I need, well, have you learned a flare plan? Do you remember what it is? Let's talk about that for a second, (laughs) right? Because people who have gone through pain rehab, I guarantee you they know what a flare plan is, and when we're in crisis, everybody forgets all that good stuff. But you could help reinforce. So be patient and persistent. The timeline for expectation of improvement is really variable, really variable, but most of the time it takes months. I see people on a one-on-one basis, just as an example, when I worked in sports medicine and outpatient um, orthopedics in the private sector before I did chronic pain or persistent pain care. I would see people twice a week for three weeks, unless it's post-op, then you know, two, three week, two, three times a week, couple months at a time. That's a pretty standard plan of care for PT. It's not what I do now. I see people once a month for a year plus. And they get better, not because of just me, but because they're learning and changing and implementing things, and it takes time for a nervous system to change. And here's a metaphor you can use for expectation setting. And I'll ask, anyone speak two languages? Show of hands. Anyone speak, right? Did you, anyone have to learn your second language in your later, year, later adult, juvenile years? I mean, not like you weren't born with it in your household. Yeah, later? So you actually had to work for it, right? I started learning my second language at age 15. That took a tremendous amount of work. 15, that's high school, right? So it takes time, practice, rehearsal, time and practice and rehearsal to get that second language, and you can't just unlearn it in a week. And you can't just unlearn it if you're practicing pain management strategies once a week. It won't work. You have to do it every day, day after day, every hour most of the time. You've got to be thinking differently and behaving differently and living differently in order to change pain, but it can change. So you can train your patients to train providers who don't have this information yet. And this is a great resource. Tamethebeast.org now has a lot of patients' um, cases, people talking about their experiences and the lived experience of transitioning out of pain conditions. Uh, but what they also have is a nice little about five to six minute video about the problem with pain and these questions. Teach your patients how to ask these of other providers. How do I know if my pain system is overprotective? How can I retrain my pain system to be less protective? All those lifestyle changes, all the different medications that might be useful for that. And how do I know if I'm safe to move? And that's really our job to help people know that they're safe, do a physical exam, reassure that your findings are convincing that they are very safe to move and say that, okay? So many people I see, do not they haven't been evaluated in years because their pain condition has been there for a decade. They haven't gotten another physical exam because people think, why? I mean, we've checked all that already. <laughs> well, do it again. These people are still scared. Okay, so back to crossing the chasm. You don't have to change what you do. Just think about it differently, perhaps, and talk about it differently, definitely. Always ask yourself this, how does your treatment plan affect your nervous system and how will your treatment plan affect your colleagues' treatment plans? And then what can you do to boost communication between them? I've seen this work where, I, uh, where we do business, I've seen this in action: this change of language, this collegial communication, this teamwork, even if we're not in the same place. And it's not as hard as it might sound, but it takes work up front, right? And with practice, we all get better, just like learning a second language. So I'm uh, gonna stop right there. We have a few minutes until my session is over. Any questions? Comments, thoughts, feelings of resistance? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, the question is about insurance and specifically with physical therapy reimbursement, because you will say and and I'm going to I'm going to tell you, I love my profession and I really respect so many people. There is so much work done in the physical therapy profession nowadays in changing our conceptualization of pain and changing how we teach about pain. But we're not all there yet. So you're going to have people who are stuck in a mechanistic approach looking, treating chronic pain like it's acute pain. And that's really the problem. Because the other thing you should know about physical therapy licenses, we're mandated to demonstrate functional improvement or else we cannot keep going. That's a mandate for us. We're, we have to justify our work. And so it, that, you know people like that may, not, may say, you still have pain, then you're not better. And maybe they need to open that frame and say, you have pain and... You can do this now that you couldn't do before, and you can do that now that you couldn't do before. So there's a gap in how we practice as well. So I would put it on you to encourage your patients to find ways to move or to teach their therapists a little bit more and, fu- and try to identify those, those um, gains in therapy and don't measure pain as a gain because pain won't change if you just wait for pain to change. It won't, especially if you're worried about body parts. Right? And, Yeah, exactly. Or say, change the conversation. You know, maybe you don't need to talk about your pain every time. Just talk about what's better despite the pain and what, what level of pain is tolerable. And let's work on tolerable pain rather than no pain. Right? So coaching your patients to ha- elevate the conversation is something you can absolutely do to help everybody in different professions actually elevate the game a little bit. It's a great question. Yeah. Excellent. So it reminds me of learning how to drive. Yeah. And one of the biggest lessons is you don't want to be focusing on things that you don't want to run into. Oh, yes. And I find a lot of pain patients, that's what they do. You focus on the pain, you focus on the pain. Mm. So this is really helpful for them in my practice. I'm Great. Like, listen, you don't want to be looking at, at that obstacle where you want to go. Yeah. You just practiced acceptance and commitment therapy right there. Fabulous. (laughs) I love that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, there's lots that we can do to change. It doesn't feel that way sometimes. It feels like we're pushing a big boulder up a mountain that keeps crumbling behind us. You know, it's bad. But I'm really hopeful about pain care, and I think we can do a better job. So thank you all for coming this morning. Look forward to seeing you later. Hope you come on Saturday.